0: It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Welcome, everyone, to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites, and... Our Malava Malka episode will talk a little bit about the great man who was Rabmisha Shapiro, not his yard sign, just, you know, he's of interest. Before I get to that, I just want to um, uh, mention a little bit of the feedback we got recently had this incredibly popular beyond any expectation uh, episode uh, in our City series of American Jewish cities we had recently on Crown Heights and uh, got a lot of great feedback. Thank you all, all these great listeners who added a lot, some interesting stories in addition. So I'm just going to pick out a few. We had a listener who submitted that I neglected to mention one of the legends of Crown Heights of Rabbi Josh Silberman, who was a great educator and the head of Pirche and Agudis Yisrael, the um one who ran Camp Monk for decades and really inspired generations of Jewish children and um in the way of Yiddishkeit. So Josh Silverman's happens to be I wasn't even aware that he was in Crown Heights. I definitely knew his story, so that's an important addition. Another one that several people submitted was that Mr. Mermelstein of the kosher takeout did not leave the neighborhood. Not only did his story stay in the neighborhood, but he himself, his family also stayed, and uh, he was part of the Crown Heights neighborhood for many, many years afterwards, so thank you for that correction. And there was a clarification also about the Skolenarebba, which this one I actually want to read part of the letter. is very interesting. Uh, You mentioned that the Rebbe stayed in Crown Heights pretty late. I want to mention that in addition to his very warm relationship that he had with the Lubavitcher Rebbe, I think that there is another factor that was at play, which says a lot about who the Skelena Rebbe was. The type of crowd that was attracted to the Rebbe was mostly Hungarian and Romanian Jews that came out of Romania quite late, like the Rebbe himself. They were mostly downhat, clean-shaven, etc., and Crown Heights was the perfect fit. Following the white flight, the most natural choice to move was to Borough Park. However, the Rebbe refused to move to Borough Park since his son, which is the Rebbe that just passed away last year, already had a shul in Borough Park. And because of that, he feared that if he moved there, all of his sons, Mishpalolim, would leave and come to Davin by him. That's why he ultimately moved to Williamsburg, which was not his natural type of community. I'm guessing that this is the reason he held off for so long for moving from Crown Heights. End of letter, it's just an excerpt. And that's a fascinating uh, addition. I didn't, also wasn't aware of that. And there's definitely a lot to say about the Skelena Rebbe, the previous Skelena Rebbe, and the last one who just uh, passed away recently at a very old age. And, um, and about what a person he was. So thank you also for that addition. And last uh, um clarification about the Crown Heights episode, which I want to mention is that someone submitted that I didn't mention that Ebbets Field of the Brooklyn Dodgers was in Crown Heights so i I had in the back of my head that it wasn't actually in Crown Heights it was nearby so I went to check it up and I asked I sought the uh, knowledge of the greatest uh, the not most knowledgeable um uh, Dodgers or any any Jewish baseball fact uh, person in the world, and also a big Jewish history soundbites listener, Aaron Katz, and I uh, asked him, and he, while he did agree with me that Ebbets Field was technically outside of Crown Heights, and I didn't have to mention it, but uh, the, the point that the listener made was a valid one, since it's really a stone's throw away, or was a stone's throw away, right outside Crown Heights, and it was... Sort of part of the neighborhood. So, okay. There's a, that's a valid point as well. We move on to, um, Ramesh Shapiro, an amazing uh, person and a, quite a story. I just want to say a few disclaimers before we jump in to who he was. Uh, first of all, um, it's always, always run a risk when it's more contemporary than history. Um, is someone who was recent in in the past um but he was you know part of a you know very important historical story he belonged to another generation he came from a different world um so there is what to say of that, even though he was more contemporary in addition to that, like I very often say on this uh, podcast, I'm not here to discuss his tyra. Um, his philosophy, his approach. I didn't know him, and he's someone who has more, tell me, than more students than almost anyone else in the world, and many of them would be happy to share um, much of his Torah and his teachings, and they'd probably do a great job with it. So that's not what I'm here to do. And in addition, it's it's literally impossible to cover to cover. In a short little little podcast, uh, such a multifaceted individual um, who had so many sides to him. So this is just going to be a taste and I'm definitely not coming to neglect any one side of him or deliberately skipping things. I'm not coming to do that. I'm just focusing on one or two things. And of course, there's definitely much, much more to his story, um, you know, out there. So, I'll start off that when I was a young bacher in the Mir Yeshiva, I was at a Shabbos meal, which we used to eat out in the neighborhoods nearby the Yeshiva, and I was eating at someone's house, and I was young and innocent, I didn't know much about the world, definitely not contemporary, I think I already knew a little bit about history, but definitely nothing contemporary. And the the host was uh, saying something over a thought on the week's, Parsha, and he said uh, that Ramesha says this in this uh, idea. And I said, oh, where does he say that? In Igris Meisha or in his, you know, thing on Chumash, his say Sefer on Chumash, Derash Meisha. I mean, you're obviously talking about Ramesha Feinstein, right? So he's like, no, I'm not talking about Ramesha Feinstein. I was like, oh, so who's Ramesha? So he's like, Ramesha Shapiro, who else? I was like, Oh, Ramesha Shapiro. Okay. So Ramesha means Ramesha Shapiro. I gotta be aware of uh, of the you know, you have to everyone has their their Ramesha, I guess. And and um and that brought me you know, the first time I guess I was exposed to his popularity and and how well known he was. And he was someone who was all novelty, all chiddish, um, very, very unique approach to many things, his teachings and many other stuff. But what's interesting is that he he took it all from his, his many, many Rebbeim. He had more rebaim than almost anyone else did. And in his relentless pursuit of truth, he created a synthesis from all his teachers and from everything he was exposed to and that synthesis seemed to be totally new. But he always insisted um, that he was drawing on the sources um, that he himself grew up with and was taught and just created something beautiful and something uh, unique that he put together. He came from a very prestigious family. His, he had an uncle. His father's brother was was uh, Rabshraga Feivel Shapiro, um, who had studied in Kelm. His father was also in Kelm. Um, it was a Kelm family. He was related to the altar of Kelm, which I'll get to in a second. Rosh Raga 5 was Shapiro was a Rosh Yeshiva in the Haida Yeshiva in Belgium, Eitz Chaim Yeshiva, which is a very interesting Yeshiva. It's all, it happens to be a great story on its own, the Haida Yeshiva and the people who were there. It was a sort of a, it was a Yeshiva for boys from Western Europe, and Belgium and France, and area, England. And it was a feeder. To a certain extent, to the great yeshivas of Eastern Europe. We're talking about the 1920s. It was opened in the late 1920s and 1930s. It sent guys to the Mir, to Tells, to other Eastern European yeshivas. The great Mir product, Rabbi Yosef Begun, it was the great Talmud of the Rabbi Rucham Levavitz, the Mashgiach in the Mir. He was the Mashgiach in, in the Haide Yeshiva for a period of time, who's also an interesting personality, also quite a life story. He's involved in Beis Yaakov. He was in Krakow and Warsaw before that. Maybe another time. And Yosef Begun and Ravshak Rafav Shapiro, along with most of the yeshiva, unfortunately, were killed by the Nazis during the war. Interestingly enough, Remato Pagramansky, the Tavriger ilui, who was in Tells previously, he was for a period of time, a short period of time, in uh, in the Haidi Yeshiva. He had a position there as well. Um, so that's Rubai Shapiro's uncle. Uh Shapiro's father, it's like Mayor Shapiro. Um, was, was, uh, his, his mother, the, you know, this, this family's mother was the altar of Kelm's niece, Zissel Ziv, the great altar of Kelm, and she was his niece. And in fact, Rashi Shapir's father, this Rabbitsik mayor um, was orphaned at a young age, and he actually grew up in Reb Nachum Velvel Ziv's home, which was his relative. And then he later on studied by the author of Slabotka. So he had strong Kelm roots, strong Musa roots, Slabotka, Kelm. Um, in fact, uh, one time he was speaking about a, a certain yeshiva. and I don't know, maybe he named it then. I definitely don't know which yeshiva he was referring to. The sources don't bring it. But he spoke with a certain disdain about this yeshiva. He said, they or Misha Shapiro, that is, he said that this yeshiva tried to raise or educate their students to become G'dayle Yisrael, to become great leaders, and nothing really became uh, of the yeshiva or any any uh, results, uh, any products. He said in Kelm, their goal wasn't to make G'dayle Yisrael, their goal was to make mention. Their product was that they created a mensch. And therefore, anyone who came out of Kelm came came out something. That's how uh, that's how Meishe Shapiro uh, classified the Kelm yeshiva. He said the question is: Do you when you have a yeshiva, do you start with Aleph or do you start with tough? He said some yeshivas start with tough. They want to get to tough. They want to get to the the uh, the ultimate goal to get to become a gadol biyisrael. He said in Kelm they started with Aleph. And that's why they were so successful. You now he himself was born in Petach Tikva. He grew up in Israel. He started uh, to learn in Panevish at a young age. He learned everywhere. He learned. He studied under everyone, and he was everywhere. Very interesting combination. He was in Panevish. He was in Chevron. He was in Mir, and he had a relationship with many, many different rabbeim. Um While in uh, Panevish, he got to know the Chazal Ish. At a young age, he was close with Rav Shach in Panavish, he was close with Rav Shmuel Rozovsky, the Panavish Rashiva, Rav David Pavarsky was the Panavish Rashiva. He knew, um, you know, even before he was in Panavish, when he was still in Pentecost, Rav Shmuel Rozovsky had a less famous brother who was probably just as great, Rav Yosef Rezofsky, he also had a close relationship with him. And uh, it seems that it was even on the Chazanish's advice that he switched out of Panevish and went to But Before he left Panevish, he had a relationship with Rav Dessler, who was also his relative, through the Kelm connection. It was his cousin. And he he considered Rav Dessler to be his primary Rebbe and teacher for the remainder of his life. Um, he was... He, he was you know, literally lived in Rav Dessler's home for a period of time. There's actually a famous story with uh, Rav Dessler and his wife's passing. Rav Dessler's wife was Rav Nachum Velvel Ziv, the, the, uh, his daughter, the author of Kelm's uh, granddaughter. And, um, and uh, when and Rav Dessler owned the Becher, the Kiddush cup of Rav Chaim who was his uncle, his father, Rav Dave Dessler and Rav Chaim Meizer they married sisters, the daughters of Rabbi Eliezer Grzinski, who Dessler was named after. Who was the son-in-law of Rabbi Yisrael Salanter. So Rav Chaim Ezer, as a uh, as a wedding gift, gave Dresler his his becher, his Kiddishka, and and which it actually wasn't even his. It was given to him when he got married by his wife's grandfather, Rabbi Yisrael Salanter. So Dessler had Rabbi Yisrael Salanter's. Becher, and, which had been used by Yisrael Salander, had been used by Rebbe Chaim and now had been used by Rebbe Desler. And after his wife's passing, he asked uh, the the Becher who was in his house helping him out to you to take out a different uh, Kiddush cup for Kiddush that week, because he wanted to use the Kiddush cup with a larger sheer, a larger size cup, because this cup was really, really small, smaller than the minimum sheer that the Mishnah brewer required which, you know, I guess was good enough for Rabbi Yisrael Salanter and Rav Chaim and Rav Dessler up until that point. But he felt that uh, that um, now that he was living in B'nei Brak and the Chazay was uh, more machmir on these, uh, on Shi'urim, on the size of the of the Bechir. So he wanted to use a larger cup. He said, why'd you wait till after your wife died? And he said, because his wife said, if it's good enough, for then you're not switching either. And he had wanted to switch earlier. So out of respect for his wife, he never switched it. But now that his wife is gone, he can switch. So that bacher, one who related the story, was Rabbi Shapiro, which the whole point of the story was to show you that he was in his house and he was living there and he was Mamash Ben Bias. He was actually, you know, very, very close with Rav Dessler. Did hear, uh, there's an issue with the story from one of them. I spoke to one of the dustlers about it. I'm not sure. I didn't get all the details. I have to double check if the story is actually, uh, the way it's told or perhaps there's a few details that need to be clarified. I'm not sure if everything I said was accurate. In any event, so, see, he's, he's, uh, he, he moves eventually to study at the Chevron Yeshiva. He's close to the Chevron of Rasha Yeshiva during his time in the Chevron. He got very close with the Briska Rav. Um, he was close even before When he was still in Bnei Brak, he was got a connection with Rabbi Isaac Sher, who was the Rashivan Slabotka. And then later on uh, and later on in life, he became very, very close with Rebbe Huttner, Huttner, who we got a lot from. Um, he learned in the mirror for a while. So he was close with Rebbe Chaim Shmulevitz, Rebbe Nachum Partsovich He used to go to Rebbe Nachum's she Urim, He was close with Rabbi Zviutel Finkel of the Mir, In other words, he was he was he got from everyone. He was later on, like I said, with Rabbi Huttner. He was also with Rabbi Dave Schwartzman, Rabbi Schwartzman, Reb Huttner, and Rabbi Shapiro. Together, they started the Beis HaTalmud Yeshiva, uh, which was he was involved in for a while. He was also close to the Mordechai Elephant of the Itri Yeshiva. He learned by Rabbi Feinstein, who was the son-in-law. of The brisk for a while, Rablazer Plachinsky. And when he was in Yerushalayim and he was also close when he was in Bayt Vigan. He lived in Bayt Vigan. He was close and got a lot from the Amshon of a Rebbe or Merl, the Amshon of a Rebbe. Um, so he, he really, and he made an effort. He actually spoke about it very often that he, he tried to get a connection with any type of great person who he could. He looked for opportunities to speak to great people when he was young. He always was seeking them out. Um, he, when Rav Ruderman, for example, came to Israel, so Rabbi Shapiro, the younger Rabbi Shapiro, went to speak to him. He wanted to speak to Rabbi Ruderman. He wanted to get to know him also. When he was in the United States, which I'll get to in a couple of minutes, he spent quite a few years there. So his Rebbe from Punevish, Shmuel Rozovsky, who had cancer, who came for treatments in the United States. So he went to visit him. Rabbi Shapiro went to visit his Rebbe. He went to visit him, spent a couple of hours there, and then left. And he found out that the next day, Rav Soloveitchik uh, had come to visit, came to visit Rav Shmuel Rozovsky also to see how he's doing, and they spent several hours together. And Rav Soloveitchik and Rav Shmuel Rozovsky spoke for several hours in learning, and it was an exciting. He heard Rav Shapiro heard from people who were there that it was an amazing event. It was so beautiful, and nice to see them together. And Rav Shapiro was like all upset. Why did I go that day? I could have gone the day next day and been there when that happened. All the excitement. But there was Salvechik being there, and I missed out on that opportunity by going a day earlier. He was always looking to um to be there uh, more and get more and and get to know other people um He used to hang around by the Briskerov when he was in Yerushalayim. um he used to Davin myrov uh there moizi Shabbos. and he described the the uh myrov crowd was, uh, Amram of the Naturi Karta was there. Very often Reb Partsovich of the Mir was there. Of course, David Finkel, who was then in Chevron, who was the right-hand man of the Briskerov for a period of time, who was from the Chevron Finkel family, who was also an interesting figure was there. In, in fact, uh, the Briskerov's son, Reb Chaim, who was quite a character, um, you know, and he had, he had some, some challenges in his life and wasn't 100% healthy. But he was in Chevron at the time. The, the Briskerov's son, Chaim. And, and Ramesh Shapiro was his roommate. So that was one of his ins into getting into the Briskerov. He said a few things over from the Briskerov. He said that, uh, he said one time he asked the Briskerov a question. And when he, and he, he prefaced the question by saying, I'll I, I want to ask the Rav a question if it's not a bother now. And the Risk Rav's answer was we'll see sh- very shortly if it's a bother or not. In other words, we'll see if it's a dumb question or it's an you know it's something worth uh answering. And and bureau was was very impressed with that answer. We'll see we'll see if it's a bother because we'll see what type of question it is. And although Ramei Shapiro was a Litvak, and he came from Kelm, and he came from the world of Lithuania, to a certain extent, and there's all different types of sayings that I've heard over from him through his students, that he was something of even of a a misnagged to to Hasidus, to the Hasidic movement. But on the other hand, he took so much from the Torah of Hasidus. He had a close relationship with people from the Hasidic world, such as the Amshin of a Rebbe, like I said, which, uh, in a way is like his own Rebbe, Rav Dessler. Rav Dessler was a, you know, a big Litvak, but had a very close uh, connections to the Torah of the Hasidic world and to personalities from there also. It's an interesting balance. So, like I said, he started Basa Talmud together with Rudyard Schwartzman and Rav Huttner. Um, it was an endeavor that he was involved with. He was later on in Arsameach. Um, the famous Thursday night shiur that it became known for was one of the only ones that was open to the public. It started in Arsamech and only later on, in later years, it moved to Ramat Shlomo. And in fact, um, one time, my father-in-law uh, suggested to me, "He said, maybe you know, I think you'd like the Thursday night shiurim in uh, in Ramat Shlomo. Maybe you'd maybe you'd go. You'd probably enjoy it." So, you know, I'm always someone to listen to advice from my father-in-law. So I go to. I went once. To his Thursday night cheer. I didn't understand anything. Um, I guess he uh, he thought highly of me, uh, but uh, I didn't understand anything. It was way beyond, way too deep. I remember he was speaking about how machar and rechem are the same letters, and that the rechem, the, the womb, carries the machar, carries the future. And I guess because I'm always so stuck in the past, so oh, it was hard for me. To think too much about the future. Maybe that's why I didn't understand it. But either way, it was a very, very popular shiur. I remember being impressed how packed it was and also his style of speaking. He was polished. He, way with language and, and, you know, clarity and it was, it was impressive. Um, he was associated over his, uh, over his career with several different yeshivas, institutions, kailas, uh of initiatives, but he never tied himself down to one place, to one style, or to one ideology. It was part of his mystique that he was, he was everywhere, but he wasn't tied down to anywhere. Um, he would give between thirty and forty shiurim a week on a huge range of topics, um, literally covering every part of the entire gamut of Torah scholarship in the. In Nigla and Nister and Kabbalah and regular and every type of sheer. He spent quite a few years in America. Um, unfortunately, his he had a daughter who was sick. So he initially went there for treatment for his daughter, but he stayed there for a bunch of years. Eventually, that daughter passed away. Um, and he at that time he became a Rebbe in the Stanford yeshiva, Reb Sim It was one of the only mainstream yeshivas that he was ever a rabbi in. Um oh, he was a mashgiach there, he was a Rebbe there, he gave a regular Gemara shear. he gave other types of Shiurim there and this was in the late 70s, the early day, 80s, and he was there for a bunch of years, during that time a couple of his Rebbeim and Eretz Yisrael passed away, so he was the one invited to give Hespedim for Reb Chaim Shmuel Avetz, for Reb Shmuel Rozofsky in different venues in America he was the guy he um he he hated politics. He tried to stay out of all the official frameworks in Israel, and that was because he loved truth, he loved MS, he did not like flattery, and his, he had a deep sense of what, uh, an understanding of what covet, of what honor was, not in the superficial way, and he spoke about it. He would speak openly about it. He. He once said, why does it say that God resides in the Dalid Amois of Halacha, in the four Amois of Halacha? He said, because if it would be eight Amois, then that would already be a political party. That would be a Miflagah. And then he used to also say over, quite often, in the name of Rabchai Chaim ozer he would say, when Sheker and Chanufa, when lies, and chanufa's flattery, they make a shiddich, they get together, then the result is politics. And he said, "I'm I'm a little surprised that a saying like that, a wise saying like that of Reb Chaim isn't more famous." Uh, so he 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 uh, he had that uh, he had that approach, and he was also a Kirv pioneer. He was involved in many kollelim, and many yeshivas, all types of Kirv for Russians, for academics, for Israelis, Americans. Uh, the great philanthropist uh, Zev Wolfson supported him and his Kiruv initiatives and his Qayulim for many years, almost completely. He had it uh, for, for Bali Tshuva themselves, and then he had for people training to go into Kiruv also for a period of time. He had it together for Zulon Schwartzman, who was his Rebbe, Rabbi Schwartzman's son. He used to daven, not at a regular shul, but I saw him several times, and that was his regular minyan. He used to daven at the Kaisel, uh, Vasikin, at sunrise every morning, he did his own thing he was very much his own man very different, Um he loved nature, he loved the outdoors he wasn't exactly the most conformist to uh, the standard, you know, he had, his wife had a PhD and taught at Hebrew University, so that I think also is pretty not standard for a uh, role of his stature he was very, very serious, very stern almost, I remember seeing him at weddings um very modest. He wouldn't like when they sang anything in his honor when he came in. Um, but he, he had a very seriousness. You're know, almost you almost intimidated in his presence um, that it was always a, a, about him, about the atmosphere about him. Now, there's another aspect of him that's very often overlooked at me, that because I'm biased I'm not going to overlook it. Um, so I want to touch on it. And, and it's not because it's more important than any other aspect of his. He was an educator, he's a Kabbalist, a teacher, a great guy, a leader, guide, and a lot of other things. But I want to touch on another facet of his personality and of his story, which is that he loved history. Not only did he love history, but he thought it was very important. And not only did he think it was very important, but he was very knowledgeable. He knew a, very, a lot of history, rabbinical history, stories, yeshivas, the Musra movement. He had a whole class that I... Once heard a recording of of the uh, Musr Philosophy of the altar of Slobatka, which is obviously a topic close to him. Um he attached importance to studying history, he felt it was part of our tradition, part of our masira. And that brings us to one of the most interesting parts of his of his life, was that he was a pioneer and unique among Gadalisrael of his stature, went on regular trips every year to Eastern Europe. And he would guide them. He was the tour guide. He would be the guide that would guide these trips. He knew the history. He knew the places, and he would he and and I know this from people who went with him and who ran the trips with him. That he would sit over the itinerary and go through it, and where are we going to be, and how long is it? Going? What's there to see there, and where should we go? Maybe we should go this way. How long does it take? And he would go there, and he would go over every detail of the itinerary, and um, it would be important to him. And he felt that there was a lot to gain out of these trips. Um, and uh, there was a local guy that he would use in Lithuania, Belarus, who I use also, a, who's a Jewish guy. And uh, he shared with me a bunch of stories about taking Ramesh Shapiro on trips. One of them, he said that Ramesh Shapiro wanted to go to Brisk, which I've been to in Belarus a bunch of times. And, uh, I, and, uh, you know, there's not much to see there. Unfortunately, everything's been destroyed, including the cemetery where the base of Levi, uh, is buried. Uh, it's a parking lot. And, um, and our local guide, so he was telling me that, uh, that Armagedd Spirits said he wants to go to Brisk. So he told him the same thing I just told you. He said, you know, Rabbi, there's not much to see there. It's all destroyed. The shul was destroyed. The base of the cemetery was destroyed. There's nothing there. You're not going to see it. And Ramei Shapiro said, I'm not going to brisk to see anything. I'm going to breathe the air of brisk. And that's why he went. And uh, I remember uh, speaking to a local in Vilna. And he said, you have no idea. Ramei Shapiro was here recently. And he said, you're 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 a Jew in Vilna and you're not taking care of the cemetery. Rabbi. It's a is buried in this Jewish cemetery in Vilna, and you need to clean up his kever. There's overgrowth around it, and it needs to be cleaned up. It's dusty, it's dirty, there's... Yeah, maybe you should even redo the the tombstone. It needs to be nicer and more prominent. This is Rebetzel Lepanovich. These details were important to him. He even got involved in the rabbinate of the remnants of the Vilna Jewish community. Which good to Vilna tradition is still an issue today. It started with the time, during the time of the Vilna Gain, the rabbinate of Vilna was an issue. And believe it or not, it's still an issue today. And Ramesh Shapiro was heavily involved in it. It was involved, it was, it was related to his involvement with Russian Jewry and Kirov and Balechuba and stuff. But it also was because he cared and uh, he wanted to make sure things were okay there. Um, he would go naturally because of his connection to the Maharal, which was the primary source of a lot of his teachings. Much of his teachings, maybe even the majority of his teachings, he would go to the Maharal in Prague um, at least once a year on on his trips to Eastern Europe. that's very Central Europe, and uh, he would go to the Altnei Shul, where where the Maharal uh, Davend, and the, the oldest shuls in Europe, maybe the oldest shul in Europe. And one time he. He, uh, was sitting quietly contemplating, studying in the Altnoi Shul when suddenly, without warning, he turned around and he's pointed to a window in the back of the Shul and he said, you know, the famous story of the Maral, uh, um, catching the priest allegedly. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. You know, there's a lot of these types of stories, but the story goes that the Maral, uh, caught a priest, saw him switching the bottle of wine that was in a drawer underneath the Aaron Kodesh, switching a bottle of wine for a bottle of blood to frame the Jews uh, on Pesach that it would be, you know, a blood libel like it was in those times. And the morale saw him, so when the police came in on Pesach night and demanded to see the bottle, and the morale had switched it back, and it was sure enough it was a bottle of wine, he saved the Prague community. So Ramesh Shapiro, who who, uh, was sitting there he says, it was from that window that the Maral saw the priest switching the bottles. And then he went back to whatever he was doing. It's like a mystical moment in the Alt Neuschul, um, with the Maral's presence being felt very real there. He would even go to Moscow for Pesach. He would, he would spend Pesach. He would leave his children, his grandchildren, his students, everything he had here. And he would go to Moscow for Pesach and spend it with the, with the Balai Tshuva, with the recent returnees to Judaism of Russian Jewry. He felt that he was needed there. He got inspired himself and he had what to give over and he would spend every Pesach out there in, in Moscow. So he was, he was very much involved in the, um, both in reviving Jewish life in Eastern Europe and about the wellsprings of our past in Jewish uh, Eastern Europe on these tours that he did. And those definitely had a lot of importance to him. We'd go on a few trips a year. He literally would bring groups there, and and it was a major event. And now that he's gone, I guess you'll all have to settle for the second best guide out there. So, you know, be in touch with me when we start having trips again. So this was Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at YGEBSS at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, and trips to places of interest to Jewish history. You can subscribe now to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.